You know, there's many famous chapters in the Bible. In fact, uh, how many can you name? If I asked you to name some of the famous chapters, so that when you name that chapter, you would know exactly what was in that chapter. You know, I, some of the ones that came to my mind were chapters like John chapter 3. You know, Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus. The new birth. John 3.16. Being born again. One of those well-known chapters. And 1 Corinthians 13 is another one. Now, we, there you have what, well, what's in 1 Corinthians 13? It's the what chapter? The love chapter. It's well known for that. Or you turn over a few more chapters of 1 Corinthians 15. And all of a sudden you come to now the chapter on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And of course, uh, being a good Reformed church, we know when you come to Romans chapter 9, you're going to be talking about what? Free will of man? No, election. Exactly. And so today we're opening chapter 7. And, and maybe a little on a lesser note, but still on, on, on a true note of, of a chapter that I believe is famous to many. And it's one we're going to look at because it's noted. You see, Romans chapter 7, you should be thinking of Paul's inner struggle that he had, the inner battle for holiness inside the Apostle Paul. And we're going to get to that in verses 14 to 25. Most are, very, are not familiar at all with verses 1 to 13, where we're going to be starting out today. But let me say this. You cannot understand what Paul's going through in 14 to 25 unless we clearly understand all the preface that Paul writes in 1 through 13, particularly today in verses 1 through 6. The big theme that's running through the seventh chapter of the book of Romans is the law of God. Uh, If you had a yellow marker and you had a Bible that you felt comfortable to take out and just highlight every time you saw the word law in chapter 7, you'd go crazy. You'd go, in verses 1 to 6, eight times you'd take that highlighter and highlight the word law, nomos, uh, the Greek word for law. Six times it's mentioned in verses 7 to 13. Six more times is it mentioned in verses 14 to 25. And if you can count, uh, add eight, six, six. You come up with a total there of a, of a big number. The law is going to be our focus. We're going to be looking at the law of God and, and the life of the law in the life of the believer, in the sanctifying work that, that, that God is doing in our life. You know, Paul's already told us much about the law back in chapter 6. Uh, we know, as we study the, through the Scriptures, that context is what? It's everything. And so we have to realize that 1 through 6 didn't just parachute down uh, into chapter 7. It's vitally connected to chapter 6. In fact, that's, you'll see the first word there is 4. And so that takes us right back into chapter 6. And, and why this is important, you can almost take chapter 6 and the first six verses of chapter 7 and, and put that at the end of chapter 6 and not have a chapter divide. It's that vitally connected to uh, what we just read about in, in chapter uh, 6, verse 14. So let me just read, just by way of memory, back in 14, uh, verse, chapter 6, we saw that for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are 
not under the law, but under grace? And of course, Paul answers, by no means, God forbid. No, no, no. So uh, the, the question is, if you're not under the law anymore, and as believers, that's what Paul told us, we're not under the law anymore, the question would come, then are we free to sin? And the answer was what? No. In fact, did you, did you say, Paul, that uh, not being under the law produces more righteousness? And the answer is yes. Then the question is, how can that be? And that's the question that we're going to see Paul answering in verses 1 through 6 today. Paul's argument in, in chapter 7 is this. If we're, if we're not going to be under the law, we must what? We must die first to the law. We must, we must die to the law so it no longer has any jurisdiction over our lives. Paul's argument in chapter 7, we must die, and now he's going to tell us how that happens, how we die to the law. If you're unsaved, we're going to see in a minute that what that means is the law is at work. When the law comes to you as an unconverted man or woman, child, what it does is it stirs up more sin. And then after it stirs up more sin and you sin more, then it convicts you of that sin. Then having convicted of you that, of that sin, it brings the penalty down on you with a sledgehammer, which is death. And so that's the law in the life of the unbeliever. We're going to see more of that as we move through this passage. So the question is, does that make the law bad? No, we saw, we're going to see in verses 1 through 6, our relationship with the law of God, uh, that is the moral law of God, it's still there, it still has a role to play in our lives as God is sanctifying us, but it's different because we are no longer slaves to that law. So this chapter before this one, the one to come, are on sanctification it's God's work of grace in the life of a believer. It's conforming us into the image of Christ. It's progressively making more, us more and more holy. And we're going to see if God is going to sanctify you and make you more and more holy, something has to take place in your relationship to the law of God. Something has to happen. You can't have the same relationship you had before you became a Christian. And such a change is essential to, to your sanctification. And he starts with the main point, the law of God. Your bondage has to be severed with the law of God so that you might be placed in a right relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's just a few, uh, if you want to break this down into some organized fashion, there is, a, there is an outline in the bulletin and... Uh, on a string of A's here. We're going to look at, first of all, in verse 1, we're going to look at the axiom, the basic principle of the law that's brought up there. Number two, we're going to look at the analogy that he brings to drive home the axiom. We just saw it's going to be in verses 2 and 3. Then we're going to apply that to our lives as believers in verse 4. And then he's going to expand that application by way of antithesis to the unbeliever and the believer. We're going to see how it works out differently in the life of each. But let's begin with the axiom first. Uh, a very common legal axiom is this. Uh, it's self-evident. An axiom is what? It's something that's self-evident. Uh, we might say it's a no-brainer. I mean, this is something like you don't have to think very hard about this at all. This is, this is, this is pretty simple. He says, or do you not know? And that connects us back to chapter 6. I'm about to tell you something that I know that you're familiar with. 
Uh, all of you are aware of this. He's writing to the, the Christians at Rome. And uh, this is nothing new. For I am speaking to those of you in the church of Rome who, are, who know the law. So he wrote to a church, and, and in that church he's speaking to those who know the law. And the question is, which law? Is it Roman law? Is it God's law? Is it the ceremonial law? Is it the moral law? Which, which law is he referring to? You know, it's interesting. If you go to the commentaries, uh, there, there's a lot of good commentators who say that really the word law here should be understood to refer to generically to any law that, that ever has been written. That uh, the law of Wyoming, the law of the United States of America, the law of the United Kingdom, the law of God, it, it's just one, one, one big uh, reference to law in general. However, the problem with that is, is, is that the context of chapter 6 and the context of chapter 7 is that Paul is specifically talking about the law of God, the moral law of God, the Mosaic law, the Decalogue. And it's also interesting to know that Paul never uses the Greek word nomos to refer to a secular law in any of his writings. So it would be totally out of, out of character for him to do that. So I believe that what Paul is, is referring to here when he says to the saints there back in Rome, he says, uh, for I am speaking to those who know the law. He's speaking to the church. And he believes that those in the church knew the law of God. Um, and that raises another question. Well, then does that mean that, that the church was full of Jews that knew the law of God? Because that was their background rather than Gentiles. Or is it referring to Gentiles and Jews, Jews and Gentiles both? Well, he does identify who he's writing to his brothers. These are brothers and sisters in Christ. They're believers. He's speaking to believers and, and those who believe in the church who are familiar with the law of God. Now, I believe he's writing to Gentiles mainly there because that's predominantly the makeup of, of the Roman church, although there were believing Jews there as well. But... Uh, it would be safe to assume that it well could be that there are, there's Gentiles in the church that would be familiar with God's law, the Mosaic law of God. Uh, there were what we call God-fearing Gentiles. Uh, they rejected the pagan religion of the day. Some of them went to the synagogue and were taught there, and, and, uh, but they weren't Jews, converted Jews. These were people like Cornelius, for example, in Acts chapter what? famous chapters, 10. And there we see the conversion of the first Gentile, whose name was Cornelius and his family. Uh, so there could have been many Corneliuses in that church who, who really uh, knew the law of God because they were, God-fearing, they were God-fearing Gentiles. But the other possibility is this. The whole makeup of the church, this is a church that existed for a while, and this is a church that I believe uh, was being taught <laughs> Well, it was being discipled, and just like it was being discipled, I'm sure the discipleship must have included the law of God. And so the church must have been taught about the law of God, just like today. Here we are being discipled, being taught, being preached to about the law of God from chapter 6 and chapter 7. So something similar could have been happening back in Rome. Now here's the axiom. That's kind of the runner-up. But here's the axiom that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. The law, now really this axiom is true of all laws, basically, that I know of, but uh, 
particularly the law of God we're looking at here. The law is binding. It has jurisdiction over those who are alive. It doesn't bind or have jurisdiction over people who are dead. And that would seem like kind of a no-brainer. I know that uh, when you die, the law's authority over you, its jurisdiction over you, comes to a what? A stop. And it's true when you consider all the laws today that you could think of. Let's say you left here today and you hopped in your car and you're going down Sheridan at 65 miles an hour and being having a good testimony, right, on the, on the Lord's Day. Where have you been? The officer says, well, I just got out of church. Oh, well, uh, how about a ticket? And so then he hands you a ticket for speeding. Why? Because you broke the traffic laws of, of Wyoming. And uh, perhaps an ordinance here in, in, uh, in Cody. But let's say, for example, and, 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 and he might even say, well, okay, that's you. You are alive. So because you're alive, I'm going to give you a ticket because I'm going to presume you were breaking the law. But if you got a ticket, let's say, the next week, and it was made out to your mom, and your mom passed away five years ago, you could take her death certificate and the ticket down to the court and say, my mom passed away. She no longer lives. What would happen? They'd drop the charges because the law doesn't have a jurisdiction over a person when they, when they die. And so that's the point, the main axiom that, that Paul is bringing here. So too with the moral law of God. God's law, God's moral law of God is only binding on a person as long as they're alive. Death breaks the binding jurisdiction, the grip of the law of God. So if you're going to be freed from the law, You've got to die. Some, someone has to die to free you from that law. And that's where point two, we see he, he brings an analogy, a, a kind of a, a story for us to be able to, a likeness to, to help us understand that principle even more. And he brings from the law of marriage uh, this. For if a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So a woman is bound by the law to her husband for life, as long as, long as, uh, as, long as her husband lives. But if the husband dies, she's what? She's released. The law is broken. She's no longer, no longer uh, under the jurisdiction of the law of marriage. When a woman marries a man, the law of God binds her to her husband for life. And isn't that part of the vows we typically take, you know, unless you're writing your own these days, but, uh, you know, until what? Death do us part. It's taken right out of here. The law of God. We're married for life. As long as the husband's alive, the wife remains married. But if the husband dies, she is free from the law of marriage and free even to, we're going to see, remarry. Paul's not, by the way, just let me just note here, Paul's not giving a comprehensive teaching on divorce and remarriage here. That's not the purpose of this passage. Some people go here and camp out here like this is all there is about divorce and remarriage, but we believe what? Scripture must interpret Scripture. And is, are there other passages about divorce? And are there other passages about remarriage? The answer is yes. Paul's purpose here is not to teach us all there is to know about divorce and remarriage. His purpose here is simply to do what? To teach us that as an analogy, as a picture, uh, a law lasts for a lifetime. 
And here's an example, marriage. He's making a point about death breaking the law of marriage. We know, you know, just FYI, there are some other passages that talk about uh, grounds for marriage besides death. And we know that adultery is one that's talked about with, by Jesus in Matthew 19. We also know that in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul talks about the unbeliever who abandons the, uh, the marriage, and, and the wife particularly, uh, is uh, free, free to divorce. And so we have those grounds that are added to death. So what's the implication of this? Well, look at verse 3. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. So if the wife leaves her husband and, uh, and, the, and the husband's still alive, uh, whether she divorces him or whether she just moves out and moves in with somebody else or whatever it is, it's very clear she's an adulteress. Why? Well, because she's broken the seventh commandment. Why? Because the seventh commandment applies to her. Why? Because her husband is still alive. Do you see how that works? And so this is the example that he gives us. But if her husband dies, she is free. She's free from the law. If she marries another man, she is not an adulteress anymore. And so you see that. Then if her husband passes away, she's a widow. And as a widow, she's free to go out and remarry because the law... She's been broken, made loose. She's no longer under jurisdiction of the law of marriage. Death breaks the law of marriage. And she's no longer to be married to a dead man. I mean, that's what it boils down to is that the obligation is to a man who's alive. In fact, Paul even directs young widows in 1 Timothy uh, that it's good to go out and get married if you're a young widow. 1 Timothy 5.14 says, So I would have young widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. So Paul's point here, I know there's a lot going on here, but it's very simple. You are bound to the law of God for life. Death alone breaks you from the dominion of the law in your life. The law no longer has jurisdiction over you if there is a death. A dead person cannot break the law, cannot be married to a dead person. So remember Paul's intent here. This is an analogy. It's about our relationship to the law of God. And if you uh, take each part of this analogy, by the way, you know, if you like commentaries and all sidetracks and rabbit trails, here's one that you can just spend pages on reading on in commentaries, taking all the elements of what Paul just mentioned about marriage and the husband dying and being in the law and the wife, and, and, and you, you try and plug all those things into the teaching that Paul's about to give us in verse 4. You find out it doesn't all add up. I mean, it, it's... Uh, so, for example... If you took the teaching of Paul and you say, well, okay, this is an analogy, right? Yes. Well, who's the wife? Who's, who's the wife supposed to be anal- analogous to? Who's the first husband? Who's the second husband? 
And the answer to those questions really falls in, in, in verse 4 that we're going to be looking at in just a minute. But when you start plugging those answers in from verse 4, you realize it, it really conflicts with what we just read about in by way of analogy. For example, in uh, verse 4, the wife uh, uh, would be the Christian, right? I mean, the wife would be equal to the Christian person, the believer. The first husband would be equivalent to the law of God. And the second husband would be Jesus Christ, the one you're married to. Now, here's the problem. In verse 3, we see that uh, the first husband, the one that dies, right, is the law of God. And in, in, in verse 4, it says, it's the wife who dies, the Christian who dies. And so then you're trying to figure, well, how does that come together by way of analogy? And I'll tell you, you can read all these very convoluted reasons for why Paul's analogy doesn't hold up on all fours. There's many attempts to resolve this in many different creative ways. But the best way is the most simple way, I think. And that is that Paul gave the analogy, the illustration, to make one simple point. Not, not so that we'd try and connect all the dots for everything in the whole analogy, but to make one simple point. And Paul gave the analogy uh, that uh, we're not to have, uh, not for the purpose of matching up every part of it, but the simple point is, is that the law of God is broken by death. That's it. You know, some of you have done a little studying with hermeneutics and proper Bible interpretation and, and how, how do we apply those principles to properly interpret the Word of God. Uh, you know, one, one of the hermeneutical principles that relate to parables, for example, or <coughs> uh, allegorical uh, examples in Scripture is this, is biblical illustrations, and this includes parables of our Lord as well, are not meant to be able to stand up on all four legs. In other words, if you take a long, detailed parable that our Lord gives, it's not to figure out, well, who's the rock and what's the water and who's this and what's the bread? Well, what's the basket mean? And why is it put in a basket? It, it, it's to make a point. And, and, and you look for the point, the, the main point that the parable is, is uh, given to us for by our Lord. Uh, so we look for the main truth. We know what the main truth is. Death breaks the law. Not every element of a parable or allegorical teaching has significant spiritual truth attached to it. Uh, there's, there's, for example, uh, the, the spiritual truth might be simply the, the meat of, the, of, of this truth. And so we've got all the seasoning around the meat, and we're trying to figure out, well, what is this? what's the pepper for? What's the salt for? What's, what's the sugar for? Well, no. It's, it's the meat. It's, it's the central truth that God has given us. And the meat of this, of this passage is this. Death breaks the jurisdiction of the law. And that's it. Now that brings us to verse 4, the application. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law. So we're, we're tying this in with the uh, example he just gave. Likewise, my brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may be may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, 
in order that we may bear fruit for God. Likewise, my brothers, my fellow Christians, here comes the central application of the axiom we just saw, you have also died to the law. Notice Paul did not say that the law died, and therefore we don't have any more relationship to the law, but you died to the law. The law is still very much active and present and doing a different work in the life of the believer. We're going to see that in a minute. But as far as its dominion over you, as far as its uh, uh, jurisdiction over you, its power over you, uh, it's died. It didn't die, but you died, and therefore it no longer has that power over you. Likewise, my brother, you also have died to the law. A death took place. When did the death take place? Well, it takes place the moment you were converted by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In what sense did you die? I don't remember dying. Well, you died to yourself, but you died to the law the moment you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Think of this. Christ himself came into this world and perfectly kept what? The law of God. Perfect obedience. And then he died on a cross. And he sacrificially laid down his life for the sins of all of his people. And so what a wonderful truth that is. And so when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are what? In union now. We've talked about this. In union with Christ, you are one with Christ. And so what's true of Christ is now true of you. Christ did what on the cross? He died. And when he died, all those who are in Christ, all those who are in union with Christ, died with him. And we died to the law the moment that we came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In the sense that we no longer have to meet the qualifications now of the law. We don't have to go out and try and do good to please God, obey the law, and earn favor in the sense that He delivered you from the power of the law in your life, from the sphere of the law in your life. And, and so no longer is the law there just enslaving you and, and actually stirring up more and more sin in you like, like it did before you were saved. And you're free from the condemnation of the law. This is one that we, by way of application, think about. Let, let it sink in. You are no longer under the condemnation of the law of God if you're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. You try and condemn yourself and you put yourself back under that condemnation and you lay the guilt back on yourself. And and he says, no, no, no. He says, you're free from the law and its condemning effect on your life. And not only that, he says, in a sense, you've been delivered from the penalty of the law because the law carries with it. You sin, you die. You sin, you die. You break the law, you die. And now you're free from the law as far as its penalty comes. And therefore you don't eternally die. The point is there is a death. And that death releases you from the bond, your bondage to the law. Our death to the law is, is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. As long as the law governs us, there is no possibility to, of, of being free from the bondage of sin. This is why this is so important. If you're going to grow in grace, if you're going to be a holy, a holy Christian, if, if, if you're becoming sanctified, you have to be broken 
from the bondage of the law in your life. You have to get loose from its jurisdiction over you or there is no hope. And this happened the moment you believed in Christ. You must die to, to be free. And how did this death take place? Notice what Paul says here, through the body of Christ. The body of Christ refers to his crucifixion. And so his death, through his death, we, we, we are made free through the body of Christ. And so we believe in Christ. We're in union with Christ. Remember, he's the second, our second Adam. We're in Christ. And therefore, everything that happened to Christ happens to us. He died. We died. Why? Because vicariously we died because we're, we're in Christ. We're in union with Him. And at that moment, you were free from the bondage to the law. You died to the law of being united to the death of Christ. Now, hopefully you can kind of follow that. I, I know it might seem a little difficult to follow Paul's explanation through this passage, but uh, hopefully you're staying with us in doing that. Uh, and, and this is all so that you may belong to another. Look at this. So, kind of like marriage. I mean, if, if the law of marriage is broken, now you can go out and what? Marry another. And here, if the law, the moral law of God is broken, you're no longer under the law. Now you're what? You, you, you can go belong to another. And who's the other? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. You can be married to Him. And you become His bride. You're discharged from the law. You're directed to another. And you become married to the Lord Jesus Christ the moment you believe. Now who, being discharged from the law, being married to Christ, who? To Him who has been raised from the dead. That's Jesus Christ. In order that we may bear fruit for God. And so here we die to the law. We're married to Christ. We're one with Him. And this all happens in order that we might bear fruit of a changed life. Be pleasing to God. Live a progressively sanctified and holy life. And then this takes us to the last, the last part here I want us to see, and that's the antithesis. Um, it breaks into two parts, 5 and 6. Verse 5 relates to what happens to the unbeliever who's still under the jurisdiction of the law. And then contrast that in verse 6 with what happens to us as believers now that we have been what? Freed from the law and we're no longer under the bondage of the law. What's the difference between a believer and an unbeliever in this area? For while we were living in the flesh, that's, that's the what? Non-Christian, before we were saved, B.C. days, before we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, we were living in the flesh. The flesh barked out the commands. We did what the flesh said to do. We were slaves to sin, and that's who we were before God saved us. What was your relationship to God? Our sinful passions were aroused by the law, were at work in our members. This is who we were before Christ. Picture this. Our sinful passions, the lust that's in us of the flesh were aroused by the law. And they was at work in our members. And so what Paul is saying here, before you were Christians, and by the way, those of you who aren't Christians, this is who you are today. You are a slave to sin. You're living in the, in the flesh. When the law comes to you, 
what you do is you take the law and it stirs up with your sin, within your sinful passions because they're aroused by the law to make you do what? Sin even more. They were at work in our members. And so our hands and our eyes, we saw this last chapter, our, our tongues, our feet, were, were given over to, to sin. And so if you're not a Christian, who we were before Christ, what the law did is make us more and more sinful. More and more sinful. Every time God's law said no, we said yes. And it made, made us want to even say yes even louder and stronger. That's who we were. I don't know if you realize that's what the law did. I mean, but this is, this is what Paul's telling us. The law mixed with a sinful nature ignites into more sin and uh, stirs up more passions in our hands and our feet and our eyes and we become more sinful creatures. So, young people, let me just give you an example from your own kitchen and from your own mother. Uh, so here we are, kitchen time at your house and mom has made this delicious chocolate cake, and it's right there on the island. You know, the one you have to walk around and look at every time you, you see this chocolate cake. And so mom comes to you, and she says, listen, this just came out of the oven. We're having guests over this afternoon. I've got to go to the store. Do not eat of this cake. There's the law. What is she doing? She's being a conduit for, for thou shalt not steal. She's bringing a conduit for for the commandment that says, honor your mother and father. And so the law is coming to you. And then she leaves and she gets in the car and off she goes and you're walking around the island and you see, you were told not to and the more you were told not to by God, the more it stirred up within your heart a passion to eat. I mean, this affects every, every part of your being, your members, he says. Uh, the law was at work in your members. Your stomach began to growl, and, and all of a sudden we see that the mouth began to water. And the hands, you're, you're trying to hold them back, but, but they're reaching out, and, and they're going for the fork or the knife. And uncontrollably, your mouth pops open, and, and you stick the cake in your mouth, and you go, oh, that was good. You see how the law, it, it, it really generates, it, it stirs up even greater sin when you're told not to. It stirs up even greater sin in the heart. And here's the double whammy of the law. This is, so, the, so that's what the law does in the life of the unbeliever. It stirs up more sin. But it doesn't stop there. It takes a hammer out after that, and it comes after you with a hammer. Oh, you sinned, huh? It stirred you up to sin. Now I'm going to smash you with this hammer. And this hammer is going to bring conviction and guilt and dread into your life because you have broken the law of God. So it has its condemning power on you. And, and not only that, it says, and by the way, because you broke, my law, broke me, you broke, you violated the law of God, you're going to die. That's what the law does. It stirs up sin. It then brings a sense of, you know, a heart of being condemned and guilt. And then it hits you with the penalty and you die. Do you see why we have to be freed from the power of the law in our life? Or we'll never grow in grace. We'll always be under the condemnation of the law. And then, look what it bears. It bears the fruit of death. 
It produces bad fruit, putrefaction, eternal wrath of God. If you're under the dominion of the law, you have no hope for sanctification. And this takes us finally to the end, the antithesis at the end. And it's really kind of a contrast on the one hand between the law and the relationship to the unbeliever and the law in relationship to now that you're in Christ and believing in Him. Verse 6 is the unbeliever. After you died to the law through the union with Christ, what relationship do you have after you're, after you're saved? Actually, I got them in reverse order, but that's okay. After you're saved, verse 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not the old way that was written in code, with the written code. But now, no longer are we, are, are we under the power of the law. Our relationship to the law has radically changed. We have been released from the law. We are not under its jurisdiction anymore. We've been freed from the law. We're no longer under the power of the law, the, the penalty of the law. Having died to that which held us captive. Death broke the law's power in our life. We've died to the law. We're no longer enslaved by the law and uh, no longer under its condemnation. That's good news. That's who we are in Christ. And then a radical, you know, we see as well, uh, so we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And the first time that Paul references the Holy Spirit here in the book of Romans... It's interesting. We've talked about sin and conviction of sin. We've talked about the doctrine of justification by faith. We launched into looking at, the, at chapter 6 on sanctification. But not till now. Here we are, seventh chapter. Paul brings up the work and the person of the Holy Spirit. And what he's saying is this. We, we now have been justified by faith. We, have been, we live in obedience to the moral law of God uh, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the old way of slavishly trying to merit and keep the law is gone. And now we, in the, whole, in the Spirit of God, are delighting in, in doing the law of God for His glory. And so in order, in order to be sanctified, in order to become Christ-like, we must be freed from the law, freed from its jurisdiction, no more under sin in our members, no longer condemn us, no longer judge us. We've been freed from the law through death. When he died, we died. We're dead to the law of God. Now keep in mind, we're going to see this as we go through this chapter further. That doesn't mean that the law has no impact on our life at all. The law becomes a delight for us. The law becomes something the Spirit of God puts in us. Not only do we delight in doing, but doing it for the right reasons. So that it continues a different work in our life. You know, as I was thinking of this work of the Spirit in the law of God in our life, I was thinking how, how much this passage seems to describe uh, the fulfillment of the Old Testament promise of the New Covenant. I mean, this, this, this 1 through 6 is a beautiful description of the fulfillment of the promised New Covenant that God was going to give us. I mean, listen to Ezekiel 36, 25 and, and, and 
Plug this in with what we just saw here in the first six verses. The promise is, when Christ comes, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I'll give you a new heart. I'm going to give you a new spirit. I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your, from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. That's the law of God. And be careful to obey my rules. And so this is a wonderful, I believe, fulfillment, fulfilling promise from the new covenant that was promised back in Ezekiel 36. Now let's see if we can bring this to a conclusion. Let me speak to those of you who are my non-Christian friends here today. Hopefully there's a few of you that uh, are friends. And, uh, because this speaks loudly to those of you without Christ. Those of you who have yet to trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. Think, just think with me where, where this passage puts you today as you apply it to your life. It paints a picture of the law of God hanging heavy over your life. And wherever you go, it's like that cloud. It it follows you around, and and you you can't get out from under it. You're under the power of the law of God, the jurisdiction of the law of God. And what's it doing there? We've already seen what it's doing is it's stirring up in your members what? Greater passion for sin. You know, the lust that's in your heart, it stirs up that lust. When it comes and says no, you say yes, and it actually produces more sin in your life. And then it doesn't stop at that point. I mean, if that was, that's bad enough, isn't it? You're more of a sinner because being under the law of God. But it's more than that. Then comes the hammer. Then the hammer comes out. Now that you've broken the law of God, I'm going to condemn you. And I'm going to hit you harder and condemn you again. And so you're walking around being condemned by, by the very sin that the law itself has stirred up within you. But the hammer gets heavier because it's going to have a fatal blow one day and that hammer is going to come down and you're going to die and face the eternal wrath of God being under the law of God. That's what the law of God does in your life. And that's why we must be freed from the law and freed from its jurisdiction. Now, think of the wonder of it all, though. Jesus came. He fulfilled the law. He kept the law perfectly. He paid the penalty of the law for sins he had never done himself, but on behalf of all those who would believe in him. He bore the wrath of the Father that we deserved. And, And really poured out his wrath on his own Son. He died, He rose again, and now the law for all who believe in Him is broken. No longer has power in your life to do those things. And here's the good news. All who believe in Christ, you know, I could ask for a show of hands, but just show your heart before God. All of you who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have died to the law. Do you believe that? Do you understand what that means and the implication for that in your life today? You've been freed from its jurisdiction. 
It no longer has a demand over you. Rather than provoking sin in you, when you hear the law of God, what happens to it, like with David, you begin to delight in it. Delight in doing it. That's the change that has taken place in our hearts. And there's no more condemnation. No more penalty. No more death. Everlasting life. We're free indeed. Free and the Holy Spirit delights us in keeping the law as we grow in grace. That's the radical change that took place. And so as we, we, we close uh, this morning, I was thinking, we didn't have it on, on our song list of hymns to sing, but the one that kept going through my mind this week after I already sent them off to, uh, to Nancy was this line. How do we as Christians respond to being free from the law? And I was thinking as, 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 as Bliss would, not Bliss, but as uh, Horatio Spafford would, would, would pen, he says, My sin, oh the bliss of this wondrous thought. My sin, not in part, but what? But the whole was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. What? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. And that's where we are, being now liberated from the law of God. And hope we'll get more into the law of God in, in two weeks, but uh, let's close there and close in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you again for opening our hearts, our minds, our understanding to a simple axiom that death breaks the law of God in our life. And we're thankful for a Savior whose death becomes our death through faith in Christ. And therefore, we have died to the law and all the blessings and privileges and, and that come from that are ours in Christ. Lord, would you be merciful on anyone here who has yet to trust in Christ? Lord, help them to be mindful of the cloud of the law that follows them around wherever they go, bringing sin, condemnation, guilt, and the penalty of death. Oh, Lord, may they be brought to flee to Christ and be liberated from the, from the jurisdiction of that law, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.